Welcome to Drinks at the Doll, episode 31, Let the Dark Times Roll. You're listening to Drinks at the Doll, a podcast way station for Lost Girl fans. My name is Stephanie. And I'm Annie. And I'm Chris. And we're being kind of fancy this week because Chris is still in California and she's staying with somebody who does not have Wi-Fi. What? What century is he in? So she is joining us via kind of her cell phone, Google Hangouts on her cell phone. So she might sound a little different and might have to drop out a little early due to the amount of data it's burning through. But thank you for joining us, Chris. You're welcome. The lengths I go to to join in on Drinks at the Doll. Last week was in a parking lot. Now you're who knows where with no Wi-Fi. <laughs> I look forward to next week when I should be back to my regular setup. Yay! Yay. <laughs> I think we're all looking forward to that. <laughs> So I don't really have a drink special for this week. I was looking, but I wasn't really able to find one. However, I do have a drink recommendation. I am drinking hot cider with a shot of wild turkey American honey in it, and it's quite delicious. So there you go. But okay, so let's get started. This week, we are discussing episode five of season four of Lost Girl, Let the Dark Times Roll. And let's talk about sort of what were your first reactions to it, just sort of quick reviews. You can go first, Chris. Well, just for the record here, I, <laughs> again, with no Wi-Fi, I ended up going to Starbucks to watch the episode, and it took me four hours to get through 44 minutes. Mm. So so my my perspective on the whole thing is probably a little skewed, but frankly, I really enjoyed it, um, you know, when it actually played. <laughs> <laughs> In my humble opinion, I, what is it, I-M-H-O, whatever, um... I thought this was one of the best episodes of Lost Girl ever because of the humor, mainly. Not just because of Docubus, just from my Docubus love. But I swear, there were so many lines. I was going to say, oh yeah, Annie, it's the humor. It was, <laughs> seriously. There, like, I am a very active watcher. Um, I don't know. I am literally quite the knee slapper and just laugh out loud to the point where I, I probably woke up my neighbors because I watched this quite late at like 1 a.m., and I think I nearly hurt myself. Like, literally, this episode. There was just so much, you know, stellar wit and just the zingers and just the dynamic between Bo and the Morgan and Bo and Vex and Tamsin and Kenzie and Bruce. I just, there's so many, I'm looking at my notes here, and there's so many times I just wrote, loved, 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 so many things. She does literally slap her knee while she watches. I, I can attest to that. I've seen it now. <laughs> So for me, I feel like I was kind of like Annie last week, who when we, when she watched Turn to Stone, she was and first finished it, she was kind of like, "What? Why didn't they do this? And why didn't they do that?" And but when kind of you know she sat with it a while, realized, okay, this this was a good episode. I was kind of the same way, and I think it was not the episode's fault in any way, but I think I was initially disappointed with it because. I know we've only got this 13-episode season, and so I feel like we should be moving along a little faster in regards to answering these big questions about the Wanderer, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really the fault of the episode. That's sort of my expectations, which isn't fair. When I like sat with it and I just thought about the episode, I'm like, you know what? This was actually an excellent, excellent episode, a really well-written, well-directed, well-acted, well-crafted 
well episode. everything yeah yes yeah. yes i think i still like last week's episode better but i think this is an excellent excellent episode I seriously need to rewatch last week's and this week's once I have a solid internet connection. Yes, you do. <laughs> so you can get the full impression. You do, because they were both really good episodes. They they are excellent episodes. I mean, they were good and I liked them, but yeah, it's there's just a lot of other watching issues. But anyway, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. So I guess let's maybe start talking about... Can, can you wait to talk to, about Docubus for a little bit, Annie, or do you want to talk yes, about Docubus no, no. first? I, like I said, when I do my notes, I do it chronologically, but start wherever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll start with the with the main story arc of Bo finding out she's dark and trying starting the process of trying to undo that, and which which led to lovely sort of misadventures and and getting paralyzed and kind of talking all <laughs> high and crazy and kind of lovey-dovey, which was pretty hysterical. And I got to say, I, I I thought there were some great guest appearances this week. I loved Pietra. Pietra. Oh, God, yes. That dress, I mean, from the first moment, you're like, holy shit. And then just her infectious kind of ditzy joy was just so funny. The actress who played her was just like milked it for everything it was worth and it showed that that was the scavenger right correct yes, yes. okay <laughs> sorry yeah i i had a moment at least one moment where i was kind of like is, is she supposed to be somehow reflective of fandom <laughs> <laughs> my fandom anyway <laughs> and she was you know I don't she, she'd sort of wedge herself between bow and lauren with an armor around each and was super excited to be there it's like, huh, that looks kind of familiar. I think I peaked myself. <laughs> Wait, is that my line? No. I think that's Annie's line. <laughs> uh, well, I will say about the beginning of the ep, where it picks up right where it left off. And I think it's, you know, interesting when Bo says, uh, you know, I love her protective reaction to the Unamans when she's when they threaten the humans in Bo's life. Well, they don't just threaten them; they say, "Yes, they will die a slow, painful death." And Bo's like, "There it is." And she sex she sexes she sucks them. <laughs> that was your hopeful ear. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think it's interesting how the Unamans, because they seem to be this in between, they use the face powers against them. From the beginning, there were so many great lines in that scene with Bo and the Unamans. But I think when Bo says, well, if I'm dark, it betrays everything I stood for. Does that mean, you know, I kind of wonder, well, she's been hanging out with the Light Fae mostly for the whole series, uh, at least for her friends. You know, I wonder if does some part of Bo think of herself as light or she pretty much thinks of herself as unaligned, actually. But, you know, for some reason that thought crossed my mind. You know, what does she, you know, when she says it betrays everything she stands for, what does that mean? I think it means, because she says, you know, unaligned succubus is kind of my brand. I think it's really that she she shouldn't be aligned to either. I think it's especially surprising to her that she's dark just because of their more casual attitude toward humans. I mean, they, they do, the writer does take take a moment to point out that both the light and the dark are assholes, according to Kenzie. But from what we've seen of Dark Fae, they tend to be more dismissive of humans, which of course puts them farther away from Bo, ideologically speaking. But I think her, her main comment was just that she, she doesn't want to be aligned. It actually crossed my mind, Annie, the same thing, that does that mean that she 
really identifies more with light again because she does mostly hang out with other light fae it's one of those you know had we not talked to emily like literally the other day where emily was talking about how important it is to Bo to be unaligned and be who she wants to be that way had we not had that discussion i think i would have thought what you were just saying annie but but because we had that discussion it's like oh it is more about not being one or the other yeah it was just a stray thought that crossed my mind because she has mostly light fae friends but i do i did love that line stephanie where kenzie says yeah they're both assholes one just has more fun but the morgan made a point or ebony made a point later call her the morgan she's the the Morgan. morgan yes well the morgan made a made a point um earlier in the episode when she was talking with Bo when they first go in the party, how she's like, well, you know, at least the dark is honest about what they're about. You know, they're like, well, we'll expose humans. But then again, the Morgan is also very tricky and she'll, she'll, she won't tell Bo the truth or whatnot, you know, because it's all for her own ends. So, but in some ways the dark just seem more upfront about what they are. They're like, yeah, we enslave humans. Yeah. We enslave other Fae. Yeah. We're going to do this and we don't care. Yeah, it is more casual attitude towards humans, but I don't know. They just, they do seem to have more fun in a kind of a way that shocks you, but at the same time, you're like, oh my God, but you can't look away. <laughs> so. so, of course, Bo's sort of first hurdle that she has to go through is is the party that the Morrigan hosts, the Dark Kaylee, which is not, you know, a vegetable enema, as Kenzie suggests. And <laughs> I love that line. I love the 69. yes that very strange waiting room it kind of reminded me of the waiting room in beetlejuice a little bit with those like strange people around nothing nobody okay Hmm. never mind (laughs) it's okay it's okay i love beetlejuice so of course the the big reveal that we got at the party was here any we'll we'll talk about Docubus was we had the reappearance of Lauren and oh my gosh the fan service just Lauren in that dress the slow motion okay, her wait, hair wait, wait, lit beautifully I thought it was my Docubuster here no I am looking all glowy I know I was like I'm sorry take it take it Annie <laughs> my squeal. So she did her own squeal this week, but I wanted to introduce the sound effect that I made for Annie's DocuBusters. So here you go. Yes, yes, yes. Annie's DocuBuster alert. Freaking <laughs> lord. Yes, the slow-mo, the dress, the barefoot, the hair porn, the arm porn. I mean, yes, the power of <laughs> did know what we want. I mean, I was like, I think I, I literally did have a bit of drool. I certainly was like, <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, I, I knew it was as soon as Bo turned around that it was Lauren. And the thing is, is that she doesn't look at Dyson that way. And I'm like... <laughs> You're just saying? Yeah, I'm just saying. Speaking of Dyson, I kind of found it hilarious that, you know, she was all, oh, Dyson's looking for Lauren. And then she says later, after when she's with Lauren, oh, Dyson's looking for you. Yeah. Not, oh, I called Dyson and told him that I, I found know. you. I, I'm <laughs> like, come <laughs> home. Poor Dyson, he's just running around, sniffing around, chasing his tail again. I think we had kind of alluded to that in an earlier podcast where but I, we're like, what if he grew a tail? I mean, like kind of half morph, chased his own tail around. How funny that would be. And I was like, oh, poor Dyson. That was just so funny to me that, that we never saw Bo or got any indication that Bo called him. It was like, oh yeah, Lauren's yeah. here. Come on home. 
you know, when Bo and Dyson first initially reunited, they were happy to see each other, but we did not get the same passionate, tear-off-the-clothes, longing-stares reaction that we did with Docubus. And I was just like, Ugh. I mean, I, when they kissed, I literally raised my arms like it was a touchdown and screamed, yes! I mean, it was like this really high-pitched, really, really loud scream, and I'm like, my neighbors are going to kill me. But I was very happy. I have a question, though. So, you know, we have we have them first seeing each other, and then it cuts to them in that little room with that very funny scene with clothes coming, being torn off and then the, the waiter coming in and offering the canapes. <laughs> so my question is, are we supposed to insinuate that they had some quick sexy times in between, or did they ever get to the sexy time part? I'm confused. I, I think maybe Lauren was hungry or something. She's like, no, no, leave the plate. <laughs> I'm like, what, did the Morgan not feed her or something? Well, part of me thought, okay, maybe she thinks she's going to be hungry afterward. <laughs> but you gotta, well, at the end of the scene, the, you know, there were cuts between the scenes with Docubus and then with Trick, but, you know, at the end of the scenes with Lauren and Bo, they said, oh, we only have a few minutes. It's not, not a lot of time, but waste not, want not, says Bo. And I'm like, I totally think they had a quickie. It's just off screen. But which time? Because I felt like... The last time. There <laughs> But it could have been anywhere. If you want to say they had more than one quickie, then I am not one. I was going to say, I, I just assumed that Annie always assumed that anytime they're not on screen, that that's what's going on, <laughs> as far as Annie's concerned. You just gave my, see, Stephanie, you just gave my mind more routes to go. And, you know, because now I think. Fodder, more fodder. More fodder, because now I think they just had several quickies within that whole scene instead of just one. But now I'll think they had several. So thank you. Well, because there was the the tearing off of the clothes, and then a cut, and then when they come back, and they're kissing again, and, and Bo's like, we really need to talk, we should do that sometime. Implying that, you know, they had not been talking previously, That's and true. that, you know, some time had passed. So, I don't know. So, what was your impression, Chris? Do you think we're supposed to assume that there were sexy times, just off-screen sexy times? Right. Okay, okay. I also thought it was really hilarious that... Bo actually chastised the Morrigan saying, you know, if we wanted an audience, we would have charged admission. When we've talked about previously that it is not uncommon for Bo and Lauren to be engaging in sexy times with the door to Lauren's apartment wide open. And what did we see in this episode? Clothes are getting torn off and the door to the room that they're in wide open. So Bo, you need to just face that maybe you're a bit of an exhibitionist. <laughs> We had Bo and, and Lauren kind of like tackling a, a uh, adventure together again. And I got to say, I really loved how collaborative they were in coming up with what to do. I feel like we, like last week, it was just sort of like Bo ditching Dyson and going off on her own. And so I liked this reemergence of a Bo who's a little more working with people. Well, I, I loved, loved, loved seeing them work together again. Like it really reminded me of Food for Thought. Yeah, me too. I was like, oh, food for thought. I know. I was going to say. But now I don't have to, because you already did. And we also had the return of Lauren and her syringes. Yay! <laughs> her weapon of choice. I love how, though, she's still in a cocktail dress and shoes, but she's still got her syringes, so it doesn't matter. Though, I, I must say I was a little confused why... I mean, I guess maybe she was dealing with, you know, quote-unquote, wounded Pietra. But why Lauren didn't stick around and come after Bo in the gym? But, yeah, I was wondering the same thing, because when Vex was doing the whole thing with, uh, you know, with the knife and mixing up the little potion or whatever, I kept expecting Lauren to come in and stop him or fix his hand or come in and try to reattach his hand right away. Uh, and I'm like, where's Lauren? <laughs> 
So, yeah, I kind of wish she'd come in, not just left Bo, uh, you know, even though it worked out fine, not just left Bo on her own. But it was really, really funny to see drugged up Bo and, you know, she wouldn't shut up about the break. And uh, again, in the meantime, I'm I'm literally hurting myself as she's like saying, oh, the break's over, the break's over. And I'm like fist pumping so hard. I think I pulled something. Going back to my sort of initial disappointment with the episode, I guess the reason maybe I was initially disappointed was that Bo was kind of out of commission for a while because she was under the effect of that drug and she wasn't being her sort of, you know, take charge, I'm going to do, get stuff done type of self. And since Bo was gone for two episodes and not really herself for the third episode, I guess I'm just like, I'm ready for Bo to be sort of like back in action. So even though I thought Anna Silk was hilarious doing all of that loopy stuff, I was kind of disappointed that Bo wasn't more active in this episode, I guess. Drugged up Paralyzed Bow was kind of adorable, though. Yes. Yeah. Drugged up Paralyzed Bow was very adorable. Anna Silk is really, really great at comedy, and I wish they let her do more of sort of that more broad comedy. She often does sort of like dry one-liners, but she's really good at broad comedy, so I, I was glad she got to do a little bit of it this episode. Actually, I think that's true of a lot of the cast, though, isn't it? I mean... For such a serious show, they've got a really funny cast. They do. They really do. Not that the show is not funny, because obviously it is, but you know what I mean. With Vex, I loved hearing about his backstory. And to me, he's, he's like the dark fae you love to hate, but not really, because I felt sympathy for him. He lost his whole family and how he's learned to be the ultimate survivor. And I just think that's, you know, really good writing that even for, uh, you know, reoccurring character, and there's so many characters in law school, but you can still work in a backstory for Vex. Um, I was just really surprised that he ended up cutting off his hand at the end. Again, I thought Lauren was going to come in and fix it, or that Bo was going to fight him hand to hand. I love how he had the car at the end, but still, um, I'm wondering where he is now. So I guess, I don't know if Bo adopted him and or took him into the fold, so if he's going to show up around the clubhouse now. Yeah, I really loved hearing Vex's backstory. Last season, it felt like they were trying a little too hard, for me at least, to get us to sympathize with Vex, to humanize him by sort of taking away his powers and making him mascara buddies with Kenzie. That was cute. It didn't really make me love Vex. I still think of him as a very cold-hearted killer from how we were introduced to him. But this backstory really, for me at least, really helped humanize him in a really real way. Right. And what's interesting, too, is, again, in the TV Guide interview with Emily, she was talking about how they've actually had that backstory for Vex, I think she said, since the beginning. So it's kind of interesting to me that they've known that this whole time and are just now revealing it. But yeah, I had the same question as you, Annie, about what where Vex is now, because in the conversation with the Morrigan, it did kind of sound like Bo agreed to claim Vex because she didn't want to turn him over to the Morrigan and have him be tortured, potentially. But we don't see him for the rest of the episode, so I'm not entirely sure where he's at now. Well, maybe presumably, maybe now Lauren's giving him medical attention. I love the hand on, you know, with the, oh, with yeah. the middle finger up so on Vex. ice. <laughs> So I'm wondering, like, are they just going to keep his hand around until 
Maybe they can find a cure and reattach it. I don't know. I mean, limbs really aren't viable all that long. But you know, this is this is this is Fay. Yeah, I was like, it's a Fay hand. Maybe so- it lasts longer. Although it was pretty gross that Trick was taking out the ice from that hand and putting it yes. into him and Bo's drinks. So I hope I was not the only one grossed out about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Annie, did you see that and think of a certain movie that I know you and I have both seen? I thought of I thought of Cold Blooded too because okay, this, I know. Yeah. Well, I, it scared the shit out of me because I thought when the just the way the cut was and everything and the way it was edited, I was really afraid for a second that. Uh, he'd hit Bo's hand. Me too. Yeah. I was like, oh. But then I'm like, oh my God, he actually did it. He cut his hand off. Poor Vex. Just to go back, Cold-Blooded is a film that Zoe Palmer was in. And I actually haven't seen it, but just from promotional posters from the film and such, I know that there is a severed hand in there somewhere. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, is that a a shout out to Zoe Palmer's film, (laughs) Cold-Blooded? Probably not, but maybe it was. So Vex sends Bo on back to the Morrigan, who, of course, had just been using her to go after Vex. Oh, poor gullible Bo. Why did you not see that to begin with? <laughs> and she, you know, gets her, her signed document, and apparently her sponsor to become Dark was Rainer. And when I first heard that name, I was like, what? Raynard? The crazy guy from Original Skin? Who? It's like only a difference of a letter or so. And I'm like, why did they pick a name so close to Raynard? And what's the deal with you needing a sponsor to join the dark? Suddenly there seems to be a lot of rules. Yeah, that was curious because we'd seen before there was a, you know, sort of a test and you chose a side or there was some sort of ceremony and you chose a side. But this is the first we've really heard of a, of a sponsor. But we don't really know what the usual choosing a side ceremony looks like, I guess. I'm kind of wondering if if a sponsor, so to speak, is sort of like, you know, a witness or, you know, a notary public or something, you know? Oh, okay. The Morrigan made it sound like the sponsor was pretty powerful because she she was saying that if Bo wanted to undo Becoming Dark, that's who she needed to talk to. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I, work with me here. I'm, I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm just throwing it out there. that viable theory, yeah. I'm not saying it's just like that. I'm just saying that, you know, in terms of of needing one, I don't know. Never mind. (laughs) So at the very end, there, Trick and Bo are talking about finding, keep wanting to say Rainer instead of Rainer, and Trick says, well, it'll be in the King's Book of Records. And then it cuts to the Unamens, opening what we assume is the King's Book of Records. And having that Faye give him another copy, I guess. I guess his head has infinite copies of Bo's contract. And them kind of freaking out, going, never again. You know, what are they afraid of with Bo? Will she upset the balance of things? Will there be another Faye war? That was my question. My impression was that they weren't worried so much about Bo, but that about whomever Rainer is. Mm. It seemed like maybe that was a Faye who had... And, you know, we're, we have this question of who's the Wanderer. Yeah. So maybe that was what this person was known by previous to that. And the Onumens remember Well, it's got to be something being that, in power. that would be upsetting the balance of whatever the Unamens want. So something that's threatening their very Borg-like mentality. And now I totally see what Emily is referring to when she says uh, the Unamens are a bit like the Borg after we just had this whole discussion of them. You know, and Trick says they're without their emotions, they don't hate, they don't love. Well, given what we have heard about Bo's father, who we're, who 
Tamsin says says is the Wanderer, is that he is a fae who wants to rule. You know, she, when when she taps into Super Succubo or whatever you want to call it, you know she you know we will reign together because I'm his daughter. Only I decide who lives. You know, we we know the Wanderer's in another plane. Maybe at some point he was banished to another plane and they're worried he's crossing over. I don't know. So I think I think there's some – you could maybe think that Rainer might be some name that the Wanderer used to go by or or something of that nature. Which is indicated in the TV Guide Canada interview with Emily. See, I haven't read it and I figured it out. I'm so smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't at least... think of that because I just thought Rainer was a separate fae sponsor but if he is another name of the wanderer yeah then that changes just as a reminder it is nearing the end of the time that you can enter to win lost girl season three dvds to enter please send an email to feedback at drinks at the doll.com with the subject line season three dvds that is the numeral three not the word three in that email please include your name where you are from as well as a link to your favorite Lost Girl fan vid or fan fiction piece. You can go to drinksatthedoll.com slash giveaway, where there is a handy little entry form that you can use. And just as a reminder, this contest is only open to U.S. residents. Sorry, international residents. We hope to be able to include you in perhaps a future giveaway. So this season, there seems to be, you know, like 1,000% more dancing, which I'm absolutely (laughs) loving. (laughs) It is kind of awesome. Because we had that lovely tango dance scene in in 401 in Memoriam, and now we have this awesome, goofy dance-off between Tamsin and the Dark Fae. (laughs) I just, well, it was so funny when I first heard that Kenzie and Tamsin were going to have more scenes together before the season started, I, you know, I'm picturing Tamsin just coming back as Tamsin, you know, not being reborn or anything. Tamsin being her hard ass self and her snarkiness and them just kind of having a verbal match. But again, this childlike Tamsin is so adorkable and so just, oh my God, I, I love, love, love seeing this side of Rachel Scarson and that dance especially in the beginning when she's when Tamsin's just kind of doing all her funky moves and they're so not hip and Kenzie's like uh uh-uh, uh 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 Emily mentioned in the interview uh for TV Guide Canada how that what was all choreographed and and I think the brilliance of the choreography is that it makes it look like it's really spontaneous and that Tamsin has no idea what she's doing so um you know props to Rachel this time for learning all the dance moves and then Tamsin and and uh, Kenzie just dancing in tandem, just so, so funny. And then she's like, okay, clench your butt cheeks. Use your powers of doubt. Again. <laughs> and the way the dark fae dancer died, it's like, well, that's what happens when you turn too many tricks. That kind of made her sound like a prostitute, Annie. <laughs> I was just going to let it slide. But yeah, it's one of those ones I said, it's a dance-off to the death. You're kind of thinking, <laughs> really? Well, actually, I, I I was in the middle of uh, emailing somebody while I was watching the episode, waiting for it to buffer. And they, they said that. And so so my comment at the time was, was dance-off to the death. I love this show. <laughs> <laughs> because because really, what? And, and you're kind of like, how are they possibly going to? Oh, that's how they do that. <laughs> <laughs> How 
is it going to be to the de- oh there it is yeah yeah thank you thank <laughs> exactly you, lost girl writers for putting in morgan's line about tamza becoming a blooming warrior princess and I'm all, i thought yes. you would appreciate that Annie. Annie. <laughs> like, yes i i did think so, of you when they said that <laughs> so so much fan service in this episode but going back to what you're saying about the goofy side of Tamsin, I'm really loving seeing the side of Tamsin, too. I know people love sort of hard-edged, snarky Tamsin from season three, but I really am enjoying the opportunity to see this, like, goofy, soft side of Tamsin. It's just, it's helping me see her in a really different light, and I really like that. Right, I'm loving it, too, and I think part of what makes it so excellent is the fact that she was the way she was last season. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think actually it's really a smart move on the writer's part because Lauren, Dyson, Trick, Kenzie, everybody is going through these really, really dark times in this season. And so it's nice to have Tamsin who's become unencumbered by that heaviness that she had on her last season at least right now so i it's i think probably she'll get just make it more devastating later in the season i know i know but setting us up for the fall i think it's smart that right now tamsin is sort of more lighthearted because everybody else is sort of going through more darker stuff right again i love it i'm i'm hoping that i think as you mentioned earlier stephanie that when tamsin starts remembering the memories of her past life that it softens Tamsin as a whole, this whole more innocent experience that she has that she can hopefully meet in the middle for the rest of this life as a Valkyrie and not be so hard-edged and yet not be total a total innocent. But I think there was some good indication of maybe maybe why Tamsin ends up so hard and at least in her previous life when we see Tamsin tap into her powers of dark because of doubt because her whole demeanor just changes when she uses those powers. It was also, of course, lovely in this little B-plot to see Bruce again. I I think we're all big Bruce fans. Yay! I really have to give Rob Archer credit. I think Emily mentioned in that interview that it took like four hours to put the sushi on him and having wasabi in places that you don't want to mention or something like that. When Kenzie took the sushi off his eye, I'm like, oh my god, that's Rob. Oh my god, he really is buried under all that sushi. (laughs) Brushy. Brushy. <laughs> the biggest sushi plat- platter ever. So I noticed in the webisode that featured Kenzie and Bruce that aired over the summer that Bruce no longer had his the marking on his forehead, which I had assumed was a tattoo, and he still doesn't have it in this episode. So I'm wondering if we have any theories as to what happened to that mark. My theory is maybe because he mentioned that, you know, he was used to being the Morrigan's man, his, you know, sort of the protector and, and, you know, enforcer, that maybe that was kind, that was her mark, perhaps, like the way Lauren wore the Light Fae Ashes necklace. Maybe that was his, her mark on him to indicate that, oh, this is, this is a kind of enforcer of the Morrigan. Well, yeah. That sounds good. That's a solid theory. (laughs) We can go with that. Or, yeah, or it could be specific to the Morgan. Maybe his new Dark Fae Master had it removed. Or that just when he left the Morgan, he took it off of him because he was defying her or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's my that's my theory. Let me know, listeners, if y'all have any other theories, or maybe maybe you just think that the production design decided to stop putting it on his forehead, and that's that. But that's my (laughs) fan explanation that I've come up with. That always kind of reminded me of the uh, the knights in the fifth season of Buffy. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, 
Even though I don't think it was the most exciting piece of the episode, we got so much information about Trick in this episode. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was callbacks to season one. And I was just like, wow, so much information. I actually had to go and kind of write down what the Unamens and Trick say to each other to kind of understand what they were saying happened after the Blood Wars. I know, so did I. I'm like, you guys gotta help me with this, because it got quite confusing, because they're referring to Trick in third person, and it took me a while to figure it out. So, can we go over it again? <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so I actually, I typed it down. So here, here's what, this is a combination of both what the Unamens and Trick says. Bless you, Stephanie. <laughs> You're welcome. After the Great Fae Wars, there was a rebellion, rebels trying to overturn the blood laws of the Blood King because he became corrupt. And we had heard rumblings of this in season one. You know, that was why Trick says he turned over Aoife was because she was part of a rebellion. Going on. But a peace was offered if the king would relinquish power to a council made of people willing to sacrifice their individual flaws and desires to form a single soul without ego or ambition. So I, I assume this is referring to the Unamens. So Trick says, okay, we will calm this rebellion by, instead of me being in power, we will create a council where we are essentially kind of all one person. So they say, the Blood King agreed, but then he betrayed us. The six seeds of the sacred papyrus plant were given to six fey to swallow, so they might be blessed with new life as a single vessel of humility and justice. So again, they're trying to form the Unamens. The king stole his seed and vanished. And this is has left the Unamens unable to enforce the laws, they say. It says, absorb the power of the blood mage and the Unamens will be able to enforce the blood laws unchallenged. We would have him take his rightful place among us if we might find him. Wait, so Trick is supposed to be part of this? Yes. Unamens? Yes. If they say, if they're going to find him, but haven't they just found him? Apparently, they don't know it's him. Uh, Remember, it was very, very hush-hush in the first two seasons. Like, people were gradually finding out that Trick was the Blood King. I think the only yeah. person who knew at the beginning was Dyson, right? Right, yeah. But then, and, and also, can I just say, any time the word unchallenged is thrown in there, that's not a good sign. No, it is not. <laughs> yeah, but then if they say that the Blood King was corrupt... Trick refers to giving up Aoife. Yes, going going on, Trick replies, he turned in his own daughter, meaning the Blood King, to satisfy the rules he created, and what he created was cruelty. So I think this is the motivation of why Trick took the papyrus seed and ran, was because he realized that these laws that he had spilled his blood for to create were not good laws. Well, Trick wasn't aware when he wrote the laws that they would turn out as bad as they did, correct? It seems like it. They would end the war, but it comes with a price, as he always says. Writing mm-hmm. his blood comes with a price. But if the Unamens are saying that there was a rebellion, to me it seems like they're referring to the Blood King, that he himself was corrupt, not necessarily just the rebellion that included Aoife. I don't understand what you're saying. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, they said the Blood King was corrupt, so... Yes. So what do they mean by that, exactly? That's what caused the people to rebel. He wrote the laws, he was still in power, 
he became corrupt, is what Trick says, which caused this rebellion to start. So in order to calm the rebellion, they brokered this deal to replace the Blood King, a single person, with kind of a council made up of six people, like this unit. But Trick realized that this was not a good idea because the, the laws he had written were bad, were cruel. So he took his seed that would have made him part of the Unamens and ran. But now I'm kind of confused because didn't, weren't they kind of like praising the Blood King in the first season or two? Yeah, yes. that's what I thought. Because I had the impression that writing the laws was the best thing to stop the war. Right. That it was a corrupt choice, or that Trick himself was corrupt in doing it. It was just the only way he could find. That's that's a really good point, because in Fey Day, you know, they're celebrating the Blood King and, and the laws that ended the ended the war. So yes, this does seem like a contradiction. But we do also have in, in the first season the mention of the rebellion that Aoife was part of. So it's kind of like, okay... Was not everybody on board with the Blood King needed to go? That's the only thing I can think of was that because it was a, a rebellion. So that probably means not everybody was on board with the rebellion. Yeah. So maybe you have one camp who's like, yay, Blood King. He wrote the laws. He ended the war. Yay. And this other camp who. That Aoife was a part of. Yeah. That, that say said. that he was corrupt. It could also be, you know, this probably happened many hundreds of years ago. So maybe like the. Corruption of the Blood King has been washed away by whomever, and the only thing that really remains of his legacy of, hey, he wrote the law that ended the war. Because sometimes that does happen with historical figures, you know? Right. Like the remaining propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it could just be that's the Unimens interpretation. They think the Blood King is corrupt. They, are, they have that interpretation of it. Because yeah. he betrayed And it's not like anybody seems to like the Unimens, so... No. Yeah. No. So there you go, I guess. Because when Trick says he became corrupt, he kind of says it with a little, I didn't really, kind of type his tone to his voice, you know? So, I don't know, maybe that was just the the reason that the rebels gave for, for why they were rebelling was that the Blood King was corrupt. But anyway, you know, it is kind of confusing. I admit it. I had to sit down and really read it and kind of figure out what happened. You could still say there's contradiction between what we know about the Blood King from season one. I think that's fair. But I really liked getting this information because it finally kind of helped make sense as to why Trick has been in hiding. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, just, I just couldn't wait to talk to you guys about it to get your opinions and sort it all out because I was like, this is pretty a bit confusing, but it's... It's such, it's great that it's such complex writing. You know, I love the whole mythology of it. And, uh, you know, there's more mysteries. What's up with this magic acorn vibrating thingy that Trick has that broke out of its box in, in the safe that he seemed very wary about? Is that the, papy the papyrus seed? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I think the indication is that it is, but. Right. That was my thought. But it could be, I mean, you're right, it could be a red herring. Who knows? Rather than breaking out, I, f I feel like more probably somebody stole it. Right. I mean, that's what I assumed also. Because there there was that guy who snuck up on Trick just as he was closing his safe. Mm -hmm. And 
who knows sort of how long he was standing there. At least maybe that's what the audience is supposed to think. Who knows how long that guy was sort of standing there? What did he see? Mm-hmm. But I guess my my big question, though, <laughs> going back to what Annie said about didn't, they, didn't the Unamens just find the Blood King? They're talking to Trick. Is why is it that no one seems to remember what the Blood King looks like? Did Trick some pull some kind of magical whammy? I guess maybe with his blood he could have. Well, as we see from the flashbacks with Isabeau in the end of season two, that he's looked the same since then, you know, for a couple hundred years at least, so if not a thousand, so I don't know. Here's my question. They know that the Blood King sacrificed his daughter. Wouldn't they know who the daughter is? Dad is? Yeah. In which case, wouldn't they know that Bo is Aoife's daughter? In which case, don't... I mean, because Bo and Trick are, like, openly talking about being grandfather and grand you cut out chris if you can hear me heard that when did i cut out you cut out when you were saying that Bo and trick are talking openly about being grandfather and granddaughter didn't he mention Aoife by name no he just said he sacrificed his daughter yeah but still he did not it might be common common knowledge but i mean wouldn't they know who that is though yeah yeah right Apparently, the Unamens need better private investigators. <laughs> but not everybody knows who Bo's mother is. True. I, you know, I think it's... Yeah, you make a point. But, you know, Trick is undercover as Fit- Fitzpatrick McCorrigan. So him calling Bo granddaughter is just kind of like, oh, that's Trick's granddaughter. You know, unless there's sort of a link to Aoife. And not very many people know that Aoife is Bo's mother. You know, I, I, I feel like it's not too revealing for them to talk that way. I guess. Okay. I was just throwing it out there, as I That's do. That's fair. That's fair. But I'm, I'm going with that. I feel satisfied. <laughs> okay. So I think a big theme in this episode was captivity and freedom. You know, in each of these little subplots in all of the characters, really. They're dealing with this issue of, of being, not being their own self, not, you know, not having control over their own destiny. Because we have with Bo, you know, she's been unaligned and then suddenly she finds out she's dark. We have, we have Lauren who, you know, tried to escape the Fae and then was captured and is kind of making this deal with, okay, the dark kind of let me come and go as I please, I'm always going to be a prisoner, at least I can choose my own cage type of thing. You know, we have Kenzie who brings up at the beginning of the episode to the Morrigan, I am not a pet, I will not be anyone's pet, nor will any human. Bruce, who was who was put into slavery, he says he became slave to Kai because he defied the Morrigan. You know, we have Vex, who is being controlled by the Unamens, willing to cut his own hand off to get out of their spell, but then Apparently, I guess maybe Bo claims them at the end of the episode. So a big, big theme of captivity and freedom in this episode. And I thought it really came to a head with the conversation between Bo and Lauren at the end of the episode. Yeah, I thought Lauren, when she outright said that she chose the dark, surprised me a little bit, but not really because it's the lesser of two evils. 
you know, the Fae will never let her go. She knows too much. She can't, she'll never be able to live a normal life. And she realizes that now after her attempt at escape. And so she, she, you know, has to go and choose the part of the world she can control. You know, she did take her captivity on her own terms in the last episode. And so she feels as free as she can get. But I think she's kind of uh, also stating to Bo, you know, Bo, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if she's being unrealistic or just the romantic and saying, no, no, we can still be together. And Lauren stating the reality, you know, you're a human, I'm, or I'm a human, you're a fae. You know, that's always going to be in the way. I'm always going to be a prisoner. You know, some people were like, oh, how dare Bo bring up that, that she would claim Lauren. But, you know, in my mind, it was just to protect her. And Bo's always felt that's her role. But Lauren has to just say, no, this is my role. I'm doing it on my own terms. Um, even if it's, you know, I can't always be with you or, you know, I'm, you know, I don't want you to claim me because, you know, she's trying to assert her independence, even from Bo, as much as she can. So even though Bo was heartbroken in that last shot, you know, I'm always going to keep the Docubus faith, but, you know, they'll always have bumps in the road. But I really liked seeing that side of Lauren just asserting her independence, you know, as much as she possibly could in this situation. Yeah, I did kind of cringe when Bo said that. The claim you if I have to? Right. Because I was just kind of like, oh, Bo, no! <laughs> well, I mean, it was done out of love and protection. No, I, I realize that, but it's just... Protective instincts. It's just one of those, like, that's not the right thing to say at that moment. <laughs> I think it just <laughs> kind of flew out of her mouth. I'm sure it did, but I'm just saying, yeah. again, that she said that. I was just kind of like, ooh, no! <laughs> backtrack, Bo, backtrack! When Bo says, claim you, if you, claim you if I have to, Lauren responds to her, yeah, you mean own me. And I thought that was a nice callback to Vexed when they, when they sleep together for the first time and Bo pulls off her necklace and says, nobody owns you and throws it away. So I, I thought that was a nice maybe callback to that little moment where we have Bo in the first season really idealistic being like, you know, nobody's going to own you, but then we see in this season, she's kind of realizing the fi- the politics of the Fae world maybe a little more, but Lauren is reminding her, no, claiming still like owning, and that's not okay with me. Here's the interesting thing. I mean, it's a fine line between being claimed and yet still being with the Dark Fae and not ever able to escape a supernatural race of beings. Again, it's it's there's no good choices for her. You know, she doesn't want to be more of a prisoner and claiming is such a, is made out to be, um, such a kind of almost a derogative term in the world of, uh, Lost Girl. And, but I think it's the first time that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the first time that claiming has really brought up, been brought up in relation to Lauren, whereas it's always been brought up with Kenzie. Um, but maybe it's because Lauren was always a slave to the Light Fae and always had the necklace on that it wasn't an issue until now. Yes, indeed. That that is why because prior to prior to this season, Lauren at least had the protection of the ash so she could move amongst the fae and not become food. But Bo had to claim Kenzie in order for her to be safe in the fae world. And I, and again, Bo did that I think when she first joined the fae world. She was kind of naive. Kind of like, okay, if if that's what I need to do so that Kenzie can hang out here, okay, fine. I claim her. And I think, you know, to Bo 
this is I, I think of things kind of from a social justice perspective. So, you know, some some people are privileged, some people are oppressed. So for Bo, she's she's privileged, you know, she's Fay. She can move in this world pretty freely, especially when she was was unaligned. And she doesn't think of of humans really any different from Faye. So to her, to claim Kenzie, it's just kind of a necessary thing, but it doesn't really mean anything to her because she doesn't treat Kenzie that way. But I think to Lauren, who is not privileged, who who is oppressed and has been in indentured servitude to the Fae for so long, you know, that's not nothing to her to have to be claimed. That that's that's it's being huge. owned. You know, that's a huge deal. It's a huge like I like I've mentioned before, that's a huge power differential in their relationship if if Bo would have to claim her to for them to be together. Well, especially it's so complicated because they love each other and because they have all these feelings for each other and because one's a human and a fae, yeah, it is very, very, yeah, it's not cut and dry for Lauren. But I think it's interesting that Kenzie rails against being claimed, and yet isn't she technically claimed by Bo? She's never talked to Bo going, I don't like how you've claimed me, even though it doesn't mean anything, again. Well, her words are, I'm not a pet. Yeah. So I think that's really what she was saying in this episode is not is that Bo doesn't I am not Bo's pet. That is not our mm-hmm. relationship. And again, she comes from a different perspective than Lauren, right. who's been enslaved from the Fae. Right. Bo uh, Kenzie has really only had this primary relationship with like Bo and Dyson and Trick, who don't treat her that way. But Lauren Most has had time. that experience of being a real a prisoner of the Fae. From the beginning. Right. Kenzie's being claimed as more like being adopted. Right. Oh, I was just going to throw out there, and I, of course, have no knowledge of future episodes, but I'm just kind of wondering if something is up with Lauren. It's revealed that Bo is dark fae, and Lauren kind of doesn't seem to react to that. You know what I mean? Except that at the end conversation that they have... She's just kind of like, well, since you're Dark Fae now, we can, you know, we'll see you around or something like that, she says. Well, initially, she you know what I mean? Because she was pretty surprised. I don't think. Well, but I mean, Lauren, knowing Bo as well as she does, doesn't that, don't you think that's weird that she didn't seem to think that Bo would have a bigger problem with it? Does that make sense? I thought everybody's reactions to Bo being dark was a little off. Like, Kenzie kind of be like, oh, do I need a new wardrobe? Because when she had that run with the Morrigan with Nate, you know, Kenzie was was pretty afraid and upset. And she was really upset when Bo was dating Ryan, who was dark fae. Right. And and then Trick at the end, who's just like, oh, yeah, I'm the Ash and you're a darling of the dark. I I felt like every... Not, nobody really reacted as seriously to Bo learning she was dark as I would have expected them to. Right. I mean, because, again, Bo's whole deal is that she doesn't want to be either. She right. wants to be unaligned. That's that's her deal. She, or I'm paraphrasing probably poorly, but you know what I mean, right? Right. That and people's reactions, the people who know and love her, their reactions to this don't really makes sense to me and so i'm wondering what the hell is going on (laughs) i don't think it's some overarching thing that's going on i think you know i i didn't really look at it aside from the trick and Bo just casually talking about at the end which was pretty weird but you know i don't think it's still a residual thing about the memory loss or anything but uh maybe they have to digest it first and i don't think they're unwilling to help Bo in her quest to not become dark. That's what was interesting about, 
you know, Lauren uh, still seems willing to help Bo undo her being dark, even if she herself is now with the dark, you know, and she'll still help Bo any way she can, even if it might eventually separate them if Bo becomes unaligned or, you know, I didn't really think about the reaction per se. I may need to rewatch it, but yeah. it just, it, it seemed too casual a response to me. I guess maybe, you know, like like Lauren says at the end, you'll figure out a way to undo it. I guess maybe that's people's attitude toward it, is that they know Bo is not going to stop until she can undo what happened. Yeah, she's not going to take it lying down, so they all know where Bo is going. So they're like, okay, let's go from here. Maybe. I don't know. Again, I need to rewatch them anyway, but... Well, I don't think you're wrong. I, that, I, that did strike me when I first watched it, too. It's like, everybody seems kind of casual about the fact that Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for like validating my feelings. <laughs> but speaking of, is something up with Lauren? Where is Crystal? We saw her last episode and she was being held by the dark. And now this episode, we don't see her. Is she still being held by the dark? We see the Morgan make reference to having new toys and Lauren kind of has a puzzling look when Pietra says that she thinks they're a lovely couple. Where's Crystal? You know, is is Lauren still involved with her in some way? Not not in a relationship necessarily, not, you know, having sexy times involved, but is she still tied up with her in some way, trying to secure her freedom, maybe? I don't know. But I hope we see Crystal again. I I really liked the switch in Bo's wardrobe for this episode to talk a little bit about wardrobe and hair because I apparently can't help myself. I felt I felt like Bo looked more like herself this episode than she did last episode. Although I didn't really like the lace up in the back again. I was like, eh, that's still kind of Kinsey, but well, it was yeah. it was pretty I was going to say is there there was still like a frilly lacy or frilly ruffly thing in the back. It was kind of corset style because it had a clasp in the front and then it laced up in the back. But yeah, I, I wasn't as much of a fan of the blue that she wore for most of the episode, but I really liked her in the the black kind of jacket and black shirt that she had on at the beginning. Oh, yeah. God, that was sexy. I'm all that. <laughs> <laughs> but as much as I liked Bo's wardrobe, I was like, why is her hair crimped? Why is it crimped? <laughs> I didn't notice. I was looking at Lauren's hair porn. Did you notice the crimped hair, Chris, or was the was it buffering well, and you couldn't not, tell? I, I did not go full screen for fear that it would worsen the buffering. Okay. So. Okay. I was also not digging the wigs that they were putting on Emmanuel Vogier. I, I hope we get her real hair next time. My my question that I had in regards to the the main storyline with Bo and going after Vex was why did Pietra, why was that knife just sort of left on a mostly dead body in an alleyway if it was so important? You know, I, I mean, I get it. It allowed kind of a character moment to show happy, go lucky, smiley Pietra to just brutally murder somebody. Yeah. Being a very dark fae. And you're like, right. yeah, dark you're still dark fae. But, you know, if, if this was what she needed to give to Vex, why did, why did she just leave it lying in the alley somewhere? That was just kind of odd to me. What it looked like to me, because when Kenzie yanks the sheet off the table and sees the murdered couple there, and Bruce says, you think the dark fag at these places for free or something like that? And then, you know, it was, it looked, I don't know, I didn't know if it was like the same bride just dumped there or whatever. So, I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, that that was kind of a random 
But it looked like they drove to that place. Yeah. So, and the limo oh, would have been oh, oh, back oh. where the bride was. I don't know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, the powers that be, for having the limo and the just married and having Lauren and Bo exit the limo. I mean. So much fan service. So I much DocuBuzz fan service. Was- <laughs> yeah, I thought you probably like that, Annie. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and this is my random tidbit. Why did Dyson move? I, mean, I wondered that, too. I Actually, like, I, 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 I idly wondered that, and then it's like, eh, they lost the location well, that they previously yeah, had his apartment. That, but it's like, I'm trying to think of a story reason. Maybe the Thuudamans going around, he's like, oh, maybe I'll just get out of Dodge and move my location for a bit. I don't know. Yeah, the probably the practical reason is they had that boxing gym set from last season, and they wanted to use Dyson's apartment set for something else, so they moved him <laughs> and 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 slightly altered the the boxing gym so that it's a different gym that he's living in exactly but i think it's funny that um yeah he always lives in gyms and these kind of dingy looking places i'm like it just seems very dyson just very manly and rough and i don't know yeah he always lives in very like industrial places they're they're not homey which fits dyson i think yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like a modern version of a of a cave that maybe he used to live in in his wolf days i don't know very man cave, industrial man cave. So, yeah. Well, they've got the same production designer that Orphan Black has, and, and Stephanie will tell you, they their home locations are very character-specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess that is it for our thoughts about let the dark times roll fantastic episode i'm i'm looking forward to next week thank you so much to chris for soldiering through and 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 joining us we really appreciate it thank you for putting up with the many attempts at phone calls <laughs> <laughs> it has not been easy we we will be very happy when chris home, comes home next week you're not the only ones believe me <laughs> <laughs> so let us know what you thought about the episode. We would love to hear your comments. You can send us an email to feedback at drinksatthedoll.com. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode at drinksatthedoll.com slash 31. Or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. I'm so glad you could join us for Drinks at the Doll. My name is Stephanie. And I'm a very happy docu-busted Annie. And I'm buffering. I mean Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.